If you have your Bible, then please turn to Acts chapter 22, verse 30. I'm going to go all the way to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Or does, is this slide up, up available? Oh, okay. TV's not working, but it's okay. So Acts chapter 22, verse 30. So brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. But on the next day, designed to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. The high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And God said, and Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there, there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome." Thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, today I'm going to talk about integrity on trial. Integrity on trial. Uh, There was once a man who lived in the Middle East. He was a very wealthy man. He was a man who had a big family. And most importantly, he was a man who feared God. He He had godly character traits, such as being a man who is blameless, upright. In other words, he was a man of integrity. And then one day he lost everything through catastrophe. Plus, he suffered health problems. And afterwards, this man had friends, three exactly, who questioned his integrity. This man's integrity was put on trial. They believed that this man lost everything because he was in sin. Therefore, God judged this man. They thought God judged this man and took everything away from him. And then in this dialogue with 
his friends. Uh, this man stood up for himself and said that they're wrong in their allegation and accusation. And eventually, God vindicated this man and restored him and his fortune. And God rebuked his friends because they have not spoken what is right. Now, some of you may know that the story that I gave to you uh, was from the book of Job. And his story should give us an understanding of integrity on trial. Integrity is a fundamental quality of a person and a vital element of a person's character. Uh, It refers to someone who consistently upholds moral and ethical principles demonstrating honesty. A person with integrity is someone who speaks both, who both speaks and lives in alignment with their beliefs and principles. And as Christians, it means being an upright man and woman of God and having an undivided heart that is consistent to the teaching of the Word of God. And from this passage that I read, we will learn that Paul's integrity is put on trial. But let me remind you of the context of this passage. You see, Paul, he just gave his testimony before the Jewish mob that wanted him dead. And in Acts chapter 21, we remember that Paul was wrongly accused of defiling the temple and teaching the Jews to abandon the law of Moses. And the tribune, who we learn is Claudius, uh, Claudius Lysias, he was about to flog him because he wanted to find out more information from, this, from Paul. But it was illegal for him to do so since Paul was a Roman citizen. And now Claudius, the tribune, was afraid of Paul, a Roman citizen. Because Roman citizens cannot be flogged and bound without first going through an official trial. And so this text begins... The following day after Paul's testimony, and verse 30 provides us the setup of Paul's trial before the Jewish council. The Jewish council. Now, we haven't seen these folks in a long, long time. If you were here, you should recall back in Acts chapter 4 all the way to chapter 6 that the early believers like Paul and the apostle John, the other apostles, and Stephen, they were arrested for teaching the people about Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. They also stood before the Jewish council and were tried by them. The Jewish council is also known as the Sanhedrin which literally means the the assembly in Greek. The Sanhedrin is like the the Supreme Court of Canada, the Supreme Court of America. Uh, It was the Supreme Council and Tribunal of the Jews in Israel during that time. It's made out of 70 elders plus one high priest. Claudius, here in this passage, commanded the chief priest and all the council to have a meeting. And Claudius brought Paul down and set him before the council. And here, Claudius is giving Paul an official trial. And these Jewish council, they should already know about something about the apostle Paul. I remember like the Jewish mob were very violent, so at the very least, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, was presumably not be as violent in comparison to the mob outside the barracks. But why? 
Why would Claudius want Paul to stand on trial? It's because, as it says in verse 30, Claudius was desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews. Twice already, chapter 22, verse 24, chapter 21, verse 33, twice already, Claudius has been trying to figure out who Paul was and what he did that got him into so much trouble. Why does he care so much about this issue? Why does he care about this matter? I think there may be two reasons. First, Claudius wants law and order. If you remember, the Roman authority perceives any sort of riot or uproar as an attempt to threaten Rome's authority and stability. And so when Paul's life was being threatened, Claudius wants to intervene. And second, Claudius wants to seek justice for Paul because he was a Roman citizen that is being accused. So see, during that culture, Roman citizenship was highly valued, and it, was, it offered legal protection and other benefits under the Roman law. And if those true reasons gave Claudius the reason to care about Paul's issue, then he's fulfilling his responsibility as a representative of the state, uh, which is to seek true justice and defense for his citizens. Now, some of us growing up, we may, we may have thought that the Roman Empire was a corrupt and evil nation, which it is to a certain degree in different timelines and history and different rulers. It is capable of great wickedness and, and cruelty. However, I personally appreciate Claudius's stance in doing what is right for Paul. Now, some of you may have come from countries where they don't treat their own citizens too all too well. You see, when a state is doing its job in performing justice and operating correctly according to the law, it should protect its citizens from criminals and injustice. And so that's what Claudius is doing, doing here. And so we move to the next chapter as Paul is on trial before the Sanhedrin. And Paul's integrity is on trial again. He has to stand up for himself against the allegation and indictment. So in this message, I want to offer you four aspects of Paul's trial that demonstrates his integrity so as to endear suffering. First, there's the, the conscience. There's the conscience. We see here in verse 1 that Luke tells us that Paul was looking intently at the council. And then Paul speaks to the council by saying, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now this sounds like a rather bold statement from Paul as he begins his defense by appealing to his own conscience. See, this phrase, I have lived my life, is a single Greek word. It, it carries a sense of conducting one's life as a citizen that fulfills his duty and obligation to his community. Uh, for Paul, he didn't violate the temple law. He didn't teach anything that was contrary to the word of God. He didn't abandon his Jewish custom and heritage. 
Paul knows that in his own good conscience that he has not has done he hasn't done anything wrong before God. And so the Jewish mob was accusing Paul of something that even God doesn't know, so to speak. Now it doesn't mean that those who believe that they have good conscience are always morally right. See, conscience uh, is not an infallible guide to knowing what is right and wrong. Generally, conscience just tells you that you should do what is right and avoid doing wrong. Even non-believers can sometimes know what's considered right and wrong. Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. But conscience cannot always explain to you what is considered right and wrong. It is not perfect. See, our conscience is often informed by our upbringing, secular culture, or even sinful culture, environments, not always based on the word of God. And furthermore, you can weaken your conscience when you violate it. And when you repeatedly violate your conscience, you become desensitized to wrongdoings and sin. The Bible calls that a seared conscience, where the sense of moral discernment becomes diminished and distorted. That's why there are psychopaths who commit acts that are objectively evil when they believe that they are doing what is right. And Paul talks about his conscience in a lot of places in the New Testament. And here are just some samplings for you. In his defense before Felix, later on in chapter 24, he says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience both before God and man. And he says to the Corinthians that he has conducted himself before them with godliness. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. You see, as Christians, it's important for you and I to have a good conscience. Whether or not you go through trials, having a good conscience is vital because you, should, you shouldn't be aware that you've done anything wrong when you're accused. And if you are aware of sin that you have not repented of, then you can confess that sin. Confess your sins before Christ and ask him to purify your conscience by his blood. And furthermore, we need the word of God. We need the word of God to tell us what is right and what is wrong. Not based on the standard of the world, but based on God, because he's the one who determines objective morality and objective truth in this post-truth environment. And not only that, 
We need our lives. We need to live our lives with a clear conscience before God Himself, always trying to be aware of His presence in our daily lives. So, brothers and sisters, are you living your life before God in not good conscience, or are you just living your own life? If you are being accused and tried for wrongdoing, will your conscience tell you that you are innocent or guilty, or will it accuse you or excuse you? So that's the first thing, Paul here. He stands with a good conscience. That shows his integrity. Second thing is, is the courage. No, the the, the correction. The correction. Things get a bit violent here. Ananias, who was the high priest during that time, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now, why did Ananias command Paul to be striked? See, what Paul said about having a good conscience before God was offensive to him. Ananias believed that Paul did not have a good conscience and that he was in the wrong before God. And so, as a high priest, he believed that he was defending God's honor. And so Ananias tells the folks around him to strike or to punch him in the mouth. They literally wanted Paul to shut up. So am I glad that this doesn't happen all too often to many preachers in the church? Paul responded to Ananias in verse 3 and hurls an insult and curse at him. He says, God will strike you. In other words, Paul cursed Ananias with a death threat. And also that, Paul calls Ananias, you whitewashed wall. Now, this expression, whitewash wall, is awfully similar to Jesus' accusation against the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23. See, Jesus called the scribes and the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. See, what Jesus meant is that a person may be clean on the outside, but dead on the inside. Certainly, what Paul is saying here is an insult. And this phrase, whitewash wall, may be an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 11 to 11, 10 to 11. Uh, you can read it yourself, but in this context in Ezekiel, Ezekiel was speaking out against the false prophets who kept promising peace and security when in fact they were promising false security and false peace. And then Ezekiel compares their deceptive actions to building a flimsy wall and covering it with layer of whitewash giving the appearance of strength and stability. And when God brings the storm, the walls, though it looks strong on the outside, it's weak on the inside. This wall will collapse. So what this means, in a nutshell, is that Paul was calling Ananias a hypocrite. A hypocrite. And and here's the reason why Paul calls him a hypocrite. He says, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? See, while Ananias may have looked nice with his high priest rope, he did not fulfill his duty. He did not fulfill his office in interceding for the Jewish people. He violated the very law he was supposed to uphold in his function as a judge. 
See, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it mentions that if a man is found guilty, then he deserves to be beaten. And not only that, in Leviticus 19.15, that the judge, the ruler, is not to judge impartial, is not to judge with impartiality or favoritism. So far, however, Paul hasn't been pronounced as a guilty man. Yet Ananias commanded Paul to be punched in the mouth as an innocent man. This is injustice. A man is supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And yet, the Jewish council viewed him as a guilty man until proven innocent. However, Paul was then rebuked in verses 4 and 5. Now, we don't know who spoke to Paul, perhaps the Jewish council, but they asked a rhetorical question, would you revile, would you insult God's high priest? See, Paul then responded that he didn't know. I didn't know that Ananias was a high priest. And then he proceeded to quote from Exodus 22, verse 28, which says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, why didn't Paul know that Ananias was the high priest? Uh, there are many explanations for it, but perhaps, I think, the more likely answer is that Paul might have had a poor eyesight. And it's spoken about in various passages where in Galatians, that I would wish that you would gouge out your eyes and give them to me, uh, suggesting that Paul's eyesight wasn't very good. And so he may have not recognized Ananias as the high priest. That's a possible explanation. But it's also possible that Paul spoke out against Ananias because Ananias wasn't functioning like a high priest. And if he knew that he was a high priest, then Paul may have just responded differently. And so while what Paul had said to Ananias was right, it still wasn't good for him to curse the ruler. Perhaps Paul was upset after he got punched. I mean, who wouldn't, right? And he lost his cool. This happens to the best of us. See, there's a difference between knowing what to say, how to say it, when to say it, and if you should say it. See, I think that Paul was in the wrong here for violating the Old Testament law since he shouldn't have insulted and cursed the ruler. This may have been his expression of apology. But more importantly, as he stands before the Jewish council, it shows Paul's desire to still keep and follow the law of the Old Testament. He didn't abandon it. He still wanted to keep it, but he failed at this moment. And see, having integrity, being a man and woman of integrity, doesn't mean that we're always perfect. It doesn't mean that we never sin. We're still sinners. And that we never mis- it doesn't mean that we never make mistakes. But what we learn about Paul's integrity in this trial is that he corrected himself when he's in the wrong. That is also integrity. Is that when you, are, you know you're in the wrong, you make changes. When you do and say something wrong, you can still be a man of woman of integrity if you're willing to humbly correct your course of action. And continue in the right path. So that's the first thing. That's the second uh, aspect, the correction. We learn about the conscience and the correction. And third, we learn 
about the conviction. The conviction. See, Paul's integrity is demonstrating is demonstrated in stating his conviction about what he believes, and because of what he believes, he is now on trial. See, in verse six here, Paul perceived that the council was made out of Sadducees and, and Pharisees, and when he saw them, he cried out in the, to the council. Brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Paul explains that he's on trial because it is the hope and the resurrection of the dead. He doesn't say the hope and the resurrection of Jesus yet, but maybe he's going to explain it soon. But for now, he's going to talk about his doctrine about the doctrine of resurrection. And not only that, as we continue our study in the book of Acts and its defense, the doctrine of resurrection would be another of Paul's theme in his defense. And after mentioning the resurrection of the dead, what happens? There is a dissension amongst the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're having a theological argument and divide over the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, in case you do not know the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they represent two schools of thoughts in Judaism. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. They were the, the, the ultra-conservatives in the party. Uh, they only believed in the Torah or the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. They only believe those books as scripture, not the rest. However, the Pharisees believe in the resurrection. They believe that the Hebrew Bible from Genesis all the way to Malachi was the word of God. And so in the various places in the Old Testament, it talks about the resurrection. But what's really odd is that the Sadducees, they denied the existence of angel and the spirits What's really odd about that is the, the book of Genesis. If you ever read, read the book of Genesis, it talks about angel and spirits. And so scholars, scholars offer six different views to understand the Sadducees' doctrinal denial. I won't have time to go through all of them, pretty nerdy stuff, but perhaps the best view, I think, is that the Sadducees denied the, that people in the afterlife will be raised in the, into a spirit or an angel. That's a possibility. And perhaps maybe there are some of you this morning who are skeptical about the afterlife, uh, skeptical about the resurrection, the angel, or the spirit. Well, guess what? You're no different from the Sadducees. But let me tell you that Christianity exists and thrives today because of the resurrection of Jesus. He rose from the dead, right? And without the resurrection of Christ, Christianity is nothing. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then what I'm preaching to you is futile. Your faith is futile. But because Christ was raised on the third day, he appeared to many eyewitnesses, about five, at least 500 of them, and also to the apostles. 
And the resurrection of Jesus is what fueled the early church to be bold in preaching the hope of the gospel to sinners who need to be saved from sin and the wrath to come. And if there are those of you who don't know Jesus this morning, you need to be saved from your sins and the wrath to come. And you can come to him. You can be saved when you come and repent of your sins and turn to Jesus and be saved. Returning to verse 9, because of the resurrection, there was a great clamor. There was a great clamor. You know, in the council here, they were shouting to each other. Uh, Paul threw the trial into, conf- into a confusion. And then the Pharisees rose and they defended Paul and contended sharply. And since Paul believed in the resurrection of the dead, the Pharisees protected Paul. Ironically, they protected Paul and said, I don't find anything wrong with this man. And then the Pharisees then said, what if a spirit, what if an angel spoke to Paul? What if that happened? Well, that's rather cute if you think about it. We know who spoke to Paul. We know who commissioned him to mission, right? It was not the angel. It was not the spirit. Little did the Pharisees know, it was God. God himself was the one who spoke to Paul. And it was the risen Lord Jesus Christ, whom they crucified on the cross, that spoke to him, that spoke to Paul, and turned his life around. And now he's standing before them as a testimony of what God has done before them. And now, in verse 10, after the Pharisees asked that question, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to Paul, the dissension became even more violent. Uh, see, the Sadducees did not want true justice for Paul. They wanted him condemned. They were not fond of him gaining support from, from the Pharisees with his doctrinal statements. And so Claudius, the tribune, was concerned. He was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. It literally means being pulled apart. Uh, this word, to be pulled apart, to be torn in pieces, is used in Mark chapter 5, verse 4, when a demon-possessed man wrenched the chains apart. So you can imagine that the Pharisees was pulling one side of Paul's arm, and then the Sadducees was pulling the other side of Paul's arm, split in two. So for, Paul's, for the sake of Paul's safety, Claudius took him by force and brought him into the barracks. And here, we learn about Paul's integrity in standing up in his conviction, standing up for his belief. He did not compromise on his doctrinal stance, even if it meant causing tension, contention, dissension, to the point of almost getting himself killed. Sadly, it is all too often the fear that the fear of men would cause Christian leaders not to stand up for their convictions, because doing so is costly, and doing so would get them into so much trouble. Perhaps their conviction wasn't really deeply rooted in Scripture. And so they're tossed to and fro by every ways of doctrines and care about, by every wind of doctrine, and by human cunning, by craftiness and in deceitful schemes. But if we really want to be a man and woman of integrity before God with a clear conscience, then we must have conviction 
about what we believe. We must have conviction about our doctrines as a church and as Christians. And this conviction can only be nurtured, cultivated, formulated through this careful study of God's word. And that's why we are hoping during the fall season we want to implement some sort of discipleship pathway for you to grow in doctrinal conviction and understand what the word of God teaches. And when you carefully study and read God's word, you become convinced, thus saith the Lord. That is what God says, and that is what God teaches and means. So therefore, that's, the, that's what we learn about Paul, his integrity, his conviction. Lastly, fourth, we learn about the courage. The courage. In verse 11, what's interesting is that the risen Lord Jesus appears to Paul after the Sadducees, and even this world, after the Sadducees denied the very existence of the resurrection. It is possible that Paul may have been going through some sort of discouragement and perhaps fear during this evening. He's uncertain of what his future will hold. Will he, see, will he live to see another day? We know later on in the next passage that the Jews will plot to kill him. However, in this moment of desperateness, the Lord spoke to Paul with a word of encouragement. He didn't say to him, well done, good and faithful servants. You're done with your task. Instead, Jesus strengthens him with a command, take courage. Why did the Lord command Paul to take courage? It's because the Lord isn't done with him. The Paul may have thought that it's over for him, but he's not done with his responsibility. And the Lord reminds him of his calling and his commission in life. He tells him to take courage because since Paul's been testifying the facts about him in Jerusalem, and here's the promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. So you must also testify in Rome. That's a promise from our Lord. That's a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ when Paul was going through suffering. Now when you think about it, and from a human perspective, the promise from Jesus sounds rather illogical and unreasonable. How can Paul get to Rome? It's like thousands of miles away. And not only that, how can Paul get out of the barracks with thousands of Roman soldiers that can just throw him back into the barracks? And even if he can get out of the barracks, there are thousands of Jews that want him dead. See, the odds are rather stacked up against Paul in this situation. But, if we, but we know that Jesus promised him to go to Rome and testify about him. If that's what Jesus promised, then he will provide Paul the means and the way. And we'll learn about that next, next, next time. But certainly for us as Christians, this requires trust and faith in the promises of God in the scriptures. We need to be bold. We need to be courageous. We need to trust in God's promises and be found blameless. The words of Jesus should serve as an encouragement for all of us, for you. Perhaps right now this morning, you need to hear the words of Jesus. Take courage. Maybe you're going through a life right now where odds are stacked up against you. You don't know what the future will hold, but Jesus says to you, take 
courage. And the phrase is often used by our Lord in the Gospels when he says, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. You see, we live in a very corrupt and dark world. Our culture and society have tragically fallen away from the foundation of Western civilization rooted in Judeo-Christian values and also has turned away from all the fundamental things we believe in hell as a value, as a culture, like the makeup of a family and marriage and gender. Society has fallen from rationality and true science. We have fallen away from objective truth in this world. We live in a post, even post-post-truth world where truth now can only be found in your own selves and your own feelings and desires, which is known as relativism and subjectivism. And honestly, when I look personally, when I look at the world, where the culture is heading, sometimes I'll admit I feel hopeless from time to time. I think about my children. I think about the next generation of young people, myself included, and what kind of world we will all grow up in, in a world that is rather confused about what is considered truth and how we can know what is truth. But as I meditate on this passage, we need to take heed of God's word, of the words of Jesus, and it takes courage. We are to take courage. It takes courage and boldness to stand on biblical integrity and not compromise and divide it in truth and in biblical principles when time gets tough. We need courage. We need to trust in the Lord and trust in his promises as given to his people in the New Testament. And so, as we're about to wrap up this message, let me just review four aspects of Paul's integrity in this trial. We learn about the conscience, that Paul was being blameless. We learn about the correction, that Paul was being humble to correct himself when he was in the wrong. We learn about the conviction, that Paul was being firm in what he believes. We learn about the courage, that Paul was being encouraged by the presence of the Lord in his tough times. And as you consider this message, brothers and sisters, and as you navigate the trials and challenges of life, will you stand with unwavering integrity, just like Paul, and just like our Lord Jesus Christ himself? Well, why you bring up Jesus? See, our Lord Jesus Christ stood with integrity as a sinless and innocent man when he was tried by the Jewish council in the Gospels. See, if Jesus weren't a man of integrity, then we would not have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would not have the good news. And Jesus would have died for nothing. However, Jesus died as an innocent man, a blameless man for guilty sinners. He died as a godly man for ungodly sinners. He died as an upright man for corrupt sinners. He did so so that those who turn away from their sins and trust in his death and resurrection would have eternal life. And that when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you walk with him, the blood of Christ will continue to purify your own conscience. And by the grace of God, if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, you who desire to follow Jesus and live just like him. And so may the Lord grant you the grace and strength to walk with integrity. And may the Lord help you to endure the evil days ahead. And may your lives, may your lives be a witness to Christ's faithfulness 
and power to endure the dark days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. We thank you how he stood strong for what he believed. He stood in his integrity. Lord, we live in a time when integrity may have fallen out of place, not living a life of honesty, not living a life of, a man, not living a life of principle, but compromise when time gets tough. Lord, give us boldness. Give us courage. We need that every day. We need your encouragement. And if we have fallen, if we have stumbled, Lord, we come before you, before the foot of the cross, before the throne of grace, and confess, Lord, help us. We have sinned against you. We have not walked as you've instructed us to walk. We have not done what you've called us to do. Cleanse us, purify us, so that we will live in a manner worthy of the Lord, so that we will live to glorify your name and enjoy you forever. Help us to imitate Paul as he imitated our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go out this week, help us to love you, help us to keep your, this passage in our minds, ingrain them in our hearts, and inscribe them on our lips. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.